Cinema Jaws brought by Overcast, an independent podcast app for everyone. No paywalls, no premium content, just a podcast app for everyone. Get it for free in the App Store. And thank you. Matt! Matt! Oh man, I could barely see you in all this snow. Why the hell are we at the top of this mountain? You said you wanted to do a new segment about video stores. Yeah, but I hear there's still a few in Chicago. I mean, I nearly died getting up here. Yeah, I lost a few of my guides on the way up. Made a makeshift cross out of sticks. The dogs will find them, I think. Where the hell are we? Well, Rai the Movie Guy, located on the summit of this mountain, tucked into the snowy wasteland, lies a monastery, but no ordinary monastery. The monks here don't brew beer or transcribe ancient books. No, they protect a far greater knowledge, a far rarer library. This, my friend, is the last video store. Every VHS-era tape ever recorded is said to be located within but we must find the secret entrance. I brought this staff and this crystal. We need to face north and say the elvish word for friend as the thrush knocks. I found it! Sign says, open. Welcome to the last video store. Oh, hey guys. Phil, what the hell are you doing here? I work here. Uh, the jaw doesn't exactly pay my bills, guys. And uh, fish tank rent's getting a little insane. Must be a hell of a commute. Eh, I got a bike. Well, uh, let me know if you need any help. Hi, sorry to interrupt. I'm just here to return this tape before the late feed. Don't want to lose any more fingers. <laughs> oh, hello, sir. Thanks for returning Jerry Maguire. Oh. Oh no. Uh, sir, you've forgotten to rewind the tape? I'm afraid you know what that means. No, please, anything but that. Guards, seize him! <laughs> you sicken me, you unrewound scum. You are hereby sentenced to death by direct to video shitty sequels. I hope you like The Little Mermaid. I actually love The Little Mermaid. Me too. The Little Mermaid 2, Return to the Sea. Oh, oh man, no, man. No, no, that's terrible. Yeah, I forgot to warn you, Rai, they take movies very seriously here, so don't go messing around. Come on, let's browse. Yeah, you're not kidding. Kind of makes me miss Blockbuster. Shh, don't use the B word. What? Blockbuster? Dude, I can't believe I can't say blockbuster. You're going to get us kicked out to die in the snow. Whatever you do, don't mention Netflix. Instant Little Mermaid 2. Hey, hey, look at this. They have Clueless. I haven't seen this in years. 
You know, there's just something about looking at all these boxes and the artwork in an actual space and not on a screen. Want to do a retro review this t- uh, this week, Matt? Hey, yeah. Hey, holy shit, is that Matt Pace? It Matt, is. It's what Matt are you Pace. doing here? Hey guys, wait. You didn't go up the dangerous mountain terrain in the front, did you? Yeah. Uh, the entrance on the other side of the store is much easier. Please, I'm here all the time. Definitely go the other way next time. Well, hey, Rye, since we're here, do you want to record the podcast at the last video store? I, I, I think it's a no-brainer at this point, Matt. You're listening to Cinema Jaw, the greatest movies podcast ever, recorded on location from the last video store. My name is Matt Kay, and with me is... Rye the Movie Guy, and sitting well behind the register is... Phil me and Phil. Hello, how are we doing tonight? This week on Cinema Jaw, we go back to the 90s as we cover our top five favorite actors who dominated the decade of the 1990s. Yeah, there was quite a few. This, is, this was a fun list. It was. I tried to be creative, too. I didn't want to pick actors necessarily that were, were good in the 90s, the 2000s, and, and even today. There were some that were just great in the 90s and then sort of faded a little bit, you know? Interesting. I did not necessarily take that tack personally, but mm. well, we'll see what happens. Well, we have a great guest who is already in the store and will be joining us momentarily, don't we, Matt? Yeah, Matt Pace is back for, I believe, his third, maybe fourth appearance. We can throw that in the fish tank early, and uh, he has a new book that ties into the topic, Rye. He sure does. In addition to that, we have more going on, don't we, Phil? Yes, we are all thankful this November because it's still Michelle Williams month, so we have another fact and another clip. And we got two reviews for you guys, the aforementioned retro review of Clueless, as well as the new Ryan Johnson Knives Out mystery, Glass Onion. Mm, Can't wait to talk about both those films. Plus, in honor of Glass Onion, Matt K will take on Matt Pace in Glass Onion cast movie trivia. Large cast. Are you just, just, just Glass Onion or like the Knives Out universe? Just Glass Onion. All right. Okay. That sounds good? Yeah. Excited. Before we talk to Matt, let's kick it off with a Michelle Williams fact. Yes, we all love Michelle. And while she has earned a Golden Globe for her portrayal of Marilyn Monroe, would you believe they snubbed her on that Oscar? She has not won any Oscars yet uh, for that. She has been nominated four separate times, though. Uh, Once for Brokeback Mountain in 2005. Once for Blue Valentine in 2010, uh, My Week with Marilyn, as we had talked about, that was 2011. And in 2016 for Manchester by the Sea. Uh, and we're hoping that maybe this year, good old Michelle will finally break through that and, and we'll finally get her some of the credit she deserves. We now, I believe you also have seen The Fablemans. We're going to review it next that week. That is right? true. Yeah. And no spoilers on the review, but I think that she could she could win something this year. I agree. It's it, it is kind of shocking. Uh, she's such a great actress that she doesn't have an Oscar just yet. But my money would say that at some point, even if it isn't this year, at some point before her career is done, she's going to be holding that gold statue for sure at some point. I, I think you're right. Absolutely. Yep. 
All right, Matt, uh, as we bumped into him here in the aisles, and I love this video store, by the way, and thank you, kudos to the last video store for actually clearing a little space so that we can re record here on location. Uh, I, I don't know what the heck our guest was doing here, but I was glad to see him. Matt Pace has a new book out. It is entitled Talk 90s With Me. Matt Pace, welcome back to Cinema Jaw. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me back. Great to see you. Great to see you, man. Last time you were on, you had a, a book out also, and that was about Zach Morris and how much he lied on Saved by the Bell. And then we get this uh, email from you that you've completed a book about the 90s, and it's a really interesting take. You basically interviewed X amount of celebrities that had some type of hit in the 90s, and you talked to them about the decade. This must have been an important decade and a, and a fun decade for you as well and, and something that you wanted to revisit, huh? Definitely. I mean, when I think of the 90s, I absolutely recognize that that was the time when I became excited about pop culture. And there are just so many movies and shows that their longevity is unbelievable. I, we've seen so many sequels and reboots and not all those turn out so well, but even the things that haven't come back are still being discussed and still feel relevant in ways that are uh, surprising and also can open up a big conversation about nostalgia and why we return to the things that we loved when we were kids. But for me, it was a really great opportunity to cast a wide net, see who was interested in getting on the phone, and it turned into this really exciting opportunity to spend an average of 60 to 75 minutes on the phone with stars of Jurassic Park and Newsies and That Thing You Do and Fresh Prince and all this stuff that was really impactful and formative for me as a kid. And it was important to me not to go back to just any random thing, though. I definitely wanted to return to material that still felt like it was worth talking about and celebrating and performances that were actually important and, and worth remembering and people that I was interested in talking to for an hour or an hour and a half. And, and 23 people were so incredibly generous with their time. And I was uh, just beyond thankful to have the chance to take these conversations, not just to a surprisingly uh, intimate place, but the whole purpose was to bring up topics that these people hadn't discussed before. There's no reason to do this book and just ask the same old questions. Uh, so it was a, a great chance to do the research that I really enjoy uh, and prepare material and, and think in a really new way about a lot of this stuff that I had never even tried to think about before. Sure. I, I think one of the things I enjoyed uh, reading it was I, obviously we all sort of came of age and enjoyed the 90s. Um, all three yeah. of us. And so we're, we're all about the same age. Yeah. So I think one of the great, great things is that you ask these uh, celebrities, actors, actresses that uh, what was what was something that they loved about the 90s? And their takes are so varied. Right. I mean, some of them literally go into what we would maybe say the video store like we're in right now is absolutely incredible. And seeing these videos around us reminds me of the 90s. So stuff like that. But others it seemed like you had to pry a little bit harder to get something out of them because they were, they might've said something very short in, in at first, right? 
Yeah, well, thanks for mentioning that, Rye. I definitely was really happy that I decided to start, even though every interview was so incredibly different and was going to these new places. I did start every conversation with the same two questions, which was asking them simply what do they miss about the 90s? What are they nostalgic for? And what movie or show have they always been a fan of or do they still go back to uh, something that they weren't in? And I think that really got the conversation started from a place of just the, the warmth that people feel for uh, a time that is past, uh, both for the pop culture or just the general experience. And I don't think anyone will be surprised that many people talk about missing the days before they felt so reachable because of their phones and just everything that's pretty obvious by now about social media, but is the first thing that comes to mind when you talk to people about something they liked about their lives in the 90s uh, versus now. So uh, I definitely think because nostalgia has so much baked in warmth to it and there's such a sort of casual, just natural connection that comes from just talking with someone about the things that they miss or the things that they love when they were younger. Uh, I definitely think that started off uh, each discussion on a really good note. I was going to ask you, actually, since you brought it up, uh, what yeah. was like one particular surprising answer that that stuck out for you as you were compiling these? About something people uh, were nostalgic for? Sure. Or in general. I mean, just a surprising answer to one of those first two questions that you asked everybody. I, I mean, there were so many that I appreciated. Billy West, who is nothing short of a legend in the world of animation and was so Ren and Stimpy. Fantastic to, to connect with him uh, as someone who grew up loving Doug and, and Futurama. Of course, he's a big part of Ren and Stimpy uh, and Space Jam. Uh, he was right off the bat after a, a minute on the phone, was just very honest, didn't hold anything back about um, kind of what he missed about the type of risks that were being taken in animation at that time and the trajectory of that world since then, uh, which... Uh, uh, he seemed to think sort of mirrored what we've seen a lot of uh, ha what has happened in a lot of other ways about pop culture and the things that do and don't get made anymore. Um, so just anytime, I mean, whether it was someone just missing their youth <laughs> or, or the days, yeah, browsing, browsing at Best Buy, browsing at uh, Tower Records or, or just looking to rent something and remembering the early days when with, your now spouse or something trying to rent something that, that one of you winds up falling asleep watching just the 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 fond memories that that come from thinking back to that time are are universal mm -hmm. if we were going to ask you though matt what is something you miss about the 90s what's your answer i would definitely you know i should have been prepared for that i i know you guys <laughs> uh i i admit that i i offered a couple times it's it's hard not to think about uh, those moments in the store of like considering what to buy, also considering what to rent too. But I also think about it just that you know, I'm sure you guys have had conversations over the years about uh, missing sort of physical media and the investment that we make when we actually choose to buy something. It's, it's great that we have everything at our fingertips now, but uh, it just sort of slides through them most of the time. Uh, the fact that I remember being at the store and like waffling over certain purchases. Um, I, if you try to sell that to a kid now, 
I definitely don't think they'll understand what's so great about that. Uh, but, but I definitely remember that experience as being part of my teenage years and, and starting to become excited about music and movies and stuff like that, but also sure. saying, well, funds are limited. I don't have access to everything. What do I actually want to invest in here? It's funny to think back. I mean, I can remember the days of getting the Circuit City and Best Buy ads and, and looking City. at those, Jesus, <laughs> looking at those ads to see the prices of the movies. And I'm talking just by dollars. Like I would have a, 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 a number in my mind, like whatever the film was, I'd be like, that's about a $7 movie. I'm waiting for that thing to slide down to that $6.99, $7 range. Because you started to know the prices of where to, you know, they were going to be. Oh, my God, it went on sale for 5 bucks. I'd get in my car on Sunday morning. I'd drive over there. I'd pick up something. Oh, I love those days. My, my experience as well, man. Like, that's, that stuff mattered. When we can have a whole separate conversation about what does and doesn't get made now and how pop culture is or isn't impacting kids and what it means to you when you find that at a young age it's sort of hard for me it's, it's hard for me to imagine i mean there's a lot about the future that's hard to predict but it's it's pretty hard to imagine 20 30 years down the road someone putting out a book like this about the stuff coming out now it just it just doesn't seem the same at all oh i agree with you man it's yeah it, it seems there's the too same. much now right we, we all agree on that i think we're, we're getting older but i i think we're we can say there's just too much yeah but, you can't all have a collective right memory about this stuff and anymore that, that's good and bad right but there's no longer this this like you were saying ryan this this shared collective experience that we all had in the 90s and that was really the last decade that we had it for real because the internet was just on the way up and it was still small enough we all watched ren and stimpy today you know kids watch youtube and and they there's like thousands of different content creators on there making god knows what and that shared experience is somewhat diminished now it's great because we can all find our our niche and um really drill into our interests but something is lost in the translation i agree and yet at the same time even to think about people drowning in all the options now i still think part of what made the material of the 90s great was the sense that you could find something that's that felt like yours whether it was something really big or like in the way that i was i was scared to see jurassic park the first time for sure but then wound up seeing it in the theater three times and and it felt special even though it was the biggest movie ever uh almost at the time and but but also something as as small as little big league or something or everyone having their favorite sports movie of the early 90s or something like that you could you could feel that something was personal to you probably not even for a reason that you could articulate or maybe haven't even thought about until now yeah so for the jawheads that want to know more about this book uh the full list of people that you interviewed i know one of them was shannon elizabeth is that her name yeah, Do I got that right. Uh, from American Pie, classic scene, late '90s. Um, but some of the others uh, tease the the audience. Matt Pace, who else did you interview? Sure. Yeah, Shannon Elizabeth was was one of them, and that was a great example of the book is definitely meant to be a celebration of the era, but for obvious reasons, a lot has changed uh, since the '90s, which is a good thing, and. 
there are some properties that you just have to have particular conversations about. And I was really glad to be able to kind of bring a, a adult perspective to uh, American Pie and, and just pursue my own curiosity about where she was coming from as she looks back on that. I, I remember laughing extremely hard in the theater when I saw it in 1999. Uh, I can appreciate that for what it was then, uh, but a lot has changed since then. Right. Uh, but to answer your question, such a great variety, whether it was Amy Jo Johnson, who I, I kind of missed Power Rangers. That didn't really come along until a little bit after I was looking for those things, but I, I mostly knew her from Felicity, but also that pairing of two things is like the most amazing <laughs> combo or the opposites of each other. Um, Dougie Doug, who I really uh, had a new appreciation for going back to his work uh, in preparation for speaking with him. Uh, Marguerite Moreau, who didn't have a huge role in the Mighty Ducks franchise necessarily, but uh, I think is really an underrated part of the era and even uh, all the work she's done since. Admittedly, I, I wanted to sneak out some Wet Hot American Summer related questions in because, yeah, that didn't come out until 2001. But as uh, as she pointed out, they they were trying to get it made in the late mm-hmm. 90s. It could have been the late 90s because it feels like a 19, 1999 was such a, a great and kind of unpredictable, weird, amazing year for movies. Wet Hot it was. totally should have been 99, not 2001. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. So for the jawheads that are listening that want to buy the book, this is a great gift for the Christmas season coming up. A lot of people love to read about the 90s. It's great listening, uh, great reading, easy reading and fun reading. Where should they go to buy the book, Matt? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for those kind words, Rye. Uh, It's available in hardcover, paperback, ebook. Uh, on Amazon, of course, but you can also get it through Barnes & Noble, uh, Walmart, Target, through IndieBound and your your local store, too. So uh, really proud of it and would love for people to check it out. This is what I'm going to do for 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 all the guys on Cinema Jaw. I'm, I'm stating this now publicly. I'm getting the hardcover for you guys for, for Christmas. And the next time we have Matt on, it'll be in person and you got to autograph it for us. Oh, this is spectacular. Would you do that for us, though, Matt? Would you of autograph course. him? All right. That's awesome. Fantastic. That's great. Again, the book is called Talk 90s With Me, and we'll have a link in the show notes, I'm sure, Matt, to uh, the book. So it'll be easy. Uh, You can always go to our website, hit the show notes, and get a link. If the Jawheads want to follow you on social media, Matt Pace, where should they follow you? Sure. It's just at my name, at Matt Pace, M-A-T-T-P-A-I-S, and all the usual places. Do it, everybody. Absolutely. We are celebrating Michelle Williams month here on Cinema Jaw. Throwing a, a hot take question on you, Matt. Mm. Favorite Michelle Williams question to Matt Pace. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. I, I was not prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> this one just knocked him off his seat. I mean, holy cow. He almost went into the aisle of videos uh, boxes right behind him. Well, I will. I have to go with something that hasn't been mentioned yet with all the nominations and stuff. Uh, I will go for Take This Waltz. Mm. Sarah Polly, such a uh, terrific filmmaker. I can't wait to see uh, her new one. Uh, with Seth Rogen also in there, right? Seth Rogen's in that. Yeah, that's that's a, one of one of the more underseen um, but enduring movies mm-hmm. of the, the 2010s, I would say. 
Nice pick. Nice pick. Phil, early fish tank. Can we see if that's streaming anywhere? You bet. Matt, that brings us to our review. Indeed. Glass Onion, Ryan. After the success of Knives Out, audiences were clamoring for a sequel. In 2020, it was confirmed that writer-director Ryan Johnson would return, and he was working on a story with a star, Daniel Craig, set to reprise his role. In March 2021, Netflix brought, bought the rights to two sequels to Knives Out for $469 million. and here we are. This new Knives Out mystery entitled Glass Onion sports an all-star cast once again and a murder most foul. Can Craig's Benoit Blanc crack the case, or is this an onion that will only make you cry? We grabbed our magnifying glasses and headed to Greece to find out. I've invited you all to my island. Hi! Because tonight, a murder will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead, will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. Well, this is truly delightful. Across the island, I've hidden clues. You will have to closely observe each other. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. Any questions? <laughs> Alibari. Uh, that has a kick. Oh my God, what happened? Glass Onion begins with an invitation. A mysterious box arrives on the doorstep of seemingly unconnected characters. A scientist, a governor, a socialite, and a meathead are all suddenly on a conference call trying to solve the puzzle of the mysterious box. But what do these characters have in common? They are all friends with Miles Braun, the tech billionaire played by Edward Norton, who has sent them this invitation by way of this mystery box to his private island in Greece to play a murder mystery game. The only catch? Two other guests arrive. One is the world's greatest detective, Benoit Blanc, who's been searching for his next big case. And the other is the mysterious and angry Cassandra Brand, played by Janelle Monet, the ex-partner of Miles. Here comes the cast, everybody. The scientist Lionel, played by Leslie Adam Jr., the governor, Claire, played by Katherine Hahn. The socialite, Bertie, played by Kate Hudson. And the meathead, Duke, played by Dave Batista. And Cassandra Brand all have motives when an actual murder takes place on the island and the game is afoot. That's a lot of setup and a lot of cast, but boy, does it work. This ensemble is terrific, and the supporting cast around them only adds more flavor to this delectable dish. Several unexpected and amazing cameos, including the final appearance, sadly, of both Stephen Sondheim and Angela Lansbury playing Among Us, will keep you on your toes throughout. Like the first Knives Out mystery, this isn't a whodunit in the sense that the audience must suss this out themselves, but more of a clever game that pivots about halfway through the runtime at what I like to call the twist, but what Rye the Movie Guy would surely call the reveal. It is at this point that we get some interesting backstory on the characters, including Cassandra Brand and Benoit Blanc, that shed new light on everything that has just happened so far. This film will be a two-watch minimum, just to go back to see all the little clues that Johnson left for us to follow like breadcrumbs. It's all in plain sight, as Blanc points out. Like the glass on you itself, the plot is transparent enough if only you know what to look for. To sum it up, Ryan Johnson has done it again. Glass Onion is sure to be a hit for Netflix, and I encourage everyone to get out to see it in the theater if you can, because it's worth every penny. 
This might just be the most fun I've had at the movie theater all year. Good to hear, Matt. I mean, this is a rare sequel that's just as good as the first film. And that's saying a lot because I loved the first Knives Out. Um, once again, I would say Ryan Johnson did a great job. And you're telling me that I would call that a reveal? No, Matt. That actually was a twist. Oh, come on. What's that the difference? That is a twist. What? I've explained How is that a twist? to you before. There are differences between a twist and a reveal. This was a twist. This was definitely a twist. Let me, let me say this, though. Ryan Johnson's <laughs> twist again oh, is it, it's actually quite good because you're right. It's it's not necessarily uh, a, a straight up who done it. By throwing in this twist, it's sort of like, oh, how did this actually come together? Right? It's like how now let's see how the pieces all fit in there. Now that we see, you know, exactly right. what what took place. It's nonlinear. Very much in a way the way. Uh, the first Knives Out was. It wasn't necessarily exactly a, a, a whodunit in, in you know straight form. We understood that the first guy died, um, Christoph, Christopher uh, Plummer. Christopher Plummer. So it, it was exactly like how did that exactly happen? And he does it again here, but in in a different way, but just as good, just as effective. So hats off to Ryan Johnson and his script. I mean, really well done. The only issue I had, and this is where I, I want to, I guess, start the discussion that I, I would have a somewhat of a, a downer look on it was interesting. The Motley crew that you mentioned and you, you named all the names and, and their professions to me seemed still a little hard to believe that they all would have worked together even though they do explain it in the movie, but for me, that was very thin. And I kept thinking to myself, as good and as much as I like these characters, I found it hard to believe that they actually would have been a, a, a group. A and, click. And a click. And, and working at that bar. For me, that seemed very thin. How about you? No. If, if, that's, if that's the biggest thing you have to complain about, you need professor plum and mrs white and and mrs peacock and you need the characters to be different and very different at that in order for the the mystery to to be more mysterious if they all were the same and had a similar motivation and and similar uh objectives and even just backgrounds i don't think it would be nearly as interesting is is it a little thin how they connect them all no, I think my suspension of disbelief that that worked for me, that worked for me completely. So for the cast, the two standouts for me, I loved Edward Norton, I thought was fantastic. And Kate Hudson, great to see her in this role. I, I thought it was fantastic casting to have Kate Hudson in there. Oh, I agree. I mean, yes, I mentioned the Anz Angela Lansbury cameo. I think that was a high point for me in terms of the cast, but the 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 takeaway performance is um, Cassandra Brand, played by um, Janelle Monet. I think she really stole the show quite a bit, you know. And she had some extra lifting to do. And I'll leave that there, dancing around spoilers. When the movie started, were you a little um, suspicious that they were going to a murder mystery party? No. Wh what do you mean? Like, like the idea of like, okay, we got this, this great, you know, uh, Benoit Blanc. Uh, Are you asking, going, did I think a real murder would take place? Well, I mean, yeah. Well, did you think that like, it was a little bit too easy of, of a, a, a plot? I thought for the first like 15, 20 minutes into the movie, I thought, ah, this is a little cheesy. 
it opened up beautifully. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, I think the that's, first setup, I, I thought like, oh boy, this isn't going to work. And then to my surprise, it was, it worked flawlessly. So what you're saying is it's kind of like an onion at first you, <laughs> you just see the outside and it seems really simple and banal. Mm. But mm. once you, once you split it open, you realize that there's massive complexity within. This is right? true. Yes. Yeah. I did. I did feel that Ryan. I thought at the outset, like, yeah, this is a really convenient setup. They're going to solve a murder mystery game, but you know, I think that's part of the genius of what uh, Johnson has done here with the script. This one definitely is a little sillier than the first one. Um, I think the first one also is is played for for some good laughs. But this one, I don't know how your screening was. I, I saw this in in Toronto, and it was like laugh out loud funny, much funnier and sillier to a degree. At least the characters I'm talking about in this one than than the first one. That's my only fear is that. If these keep going on, I don't want a straight-up comedy. I don't want it to keep leaning so heavy into the comedy because I really like solving and seeing how you put the pieces together in there. He's got something good here. Don't go too silly. Uh, that's an interesting take. I'll have to re-watch the first one. It didn't feel off-balance to me, but I have not seen the first Knives Out um, since the year it came out. So uh, I, I agree with you, though. They They do need to watch that balance. I didn't find it to be too silly. Like every serious beat was taken seriously. It's just that these characters had some humor in them. I, I don't know. It, it was okay, but I agree with you. Jaw-dropping moment for you, Matt. I got mine. Are you ready? Uh, yeah, go. Um, I love, obviously, they're going to this murder mystery party. And at one point, they're talking about the fact that it, that it is this murder mystery. And... um. Benoit, Benoit Blanc. Blanc solves the damn thing. Like he, he talks about how it would have all worked. The, the actual murder in, inside the party within seconds, that entire scene, that was damn funny. I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Uh, I would say the jaw dropping moment for me was the twist. Once, once that card is played, uh, you're like, wow. Like it, the whole movie kind of like pivots. And I think that was incredibly well done. Yeah, I have not seen it a second time, but that was a good point that you made because I, I'd like to go back and watch everything that happened before the twist is revealed to see all the interactions of the characters that we weren't privy to beforehand. You know what I mean? Right. When the twist is what, Rye? <laughs> revealed. Oh, so it's a reveal then. <laughs> Movie poster quote I went for, all the clues lead to another great mystery film. Mine is peel back the layers of the glass onion and you'll find an amazing mystery. I went three and a half jaws on the second Knives Out film. How about you, Matt? I thought about this for a long time and couldn't find any flaws. I'm giving it four jaws. Wow. Four jaws for Matt K. Good to hear. Jawheads. Four jaws for Matt K. Three and a half jaws for Rye the Movie Guy. Glass Onion is going to play in theaters for a week. I did not write down, silly me, the date it hits Netflix. Throw it in the fish tank, Phil. Usually I have that in my notes and I do not. Um, but it's very, very soon. So um, definitely check it out there. And when you do, shoot us a tweet where we're at Cinemajaw or an email, feedback at cinemajaw.com. Let us know what you think of the movie and our review. 
since we're hanging out in this video store and we got all these cool boxes and artwork that I can see a lot of these took place in the 90s and obviously Matt Pace sitting alongside us with his book Talk 90s with me we got talking what actors what actresses dominated the 1990s and I had so much fun doing the research on this to be honest pulling the curtain back sometimes doing the research on our top fives is not nearly as fun as this. It, it can be tedious sometimes. This one I just had a, a joy with. Matt, did you find it the same? It was it was Matt, Matt Pace that is. Uh, I did have fun with it. I I guess my interpretation of our the top five was a little bit more like who actually dominated, who is sort of untouchable in terms of what they accomplished in the decade. I'm not sure if the the people I identified i i threw in one who i was a little bit more of a personal interpretation but um i'm excited to see what you guys came up with uh i'm sure we'll have at least one that overlaps but i'm very excited to see the ones that don't all right well you're getting us started with your number five pick who dominated the decade matt so for the number five one i wanted to do someone that i don't think can stand up to some of the other names that I picked, but the trajectory that he had through the nineties is just so awesome. Uh, starting with Goodfellas and leading all the way to deep blue sea. And yeah, I, I Phantom Menace, which is commendable for its scale, but not for what it is, but to go from a little part, in Goodfellas to the type of uh, massive opportunities that came later in the 90s. Samuel L. Jackson, of course, we can't leave out Jurassic Park, Fresh, Pulp Fiction, uh, National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1. Can't miss that one. <laughs> Die Hard with a Vengeance, uh, A Time to Kill, Eve's Bayou. I, I mean, he, the negotiator, such a great decade for Samuel Jackson. Hell yeah. No doubt about it. Honorable mention for me. I did, this was when I, I definitely researched to look at his filmography of the 90s. He definitely popped up in my mind. I was, I'd forgot that he, you're going all the way to Goodfellas, which was 1990, right? Um, because I was thinking in my head, Pulp Fiction, right? I mean, Pulp Fiction was such a juggernaut mm, yeah. that you, I just know it. It's 94. And then everything from there, I know that was in my mind. That's like when Sam Jackson's career just, you know, catapulted. Um, but I was shocked to see there is some stuff between 90 and 94 that's like notable to bring up as well. So, yeah, he had a hell of a decade. Indeed. Yeah, man. Tough to argue with Sam Jackson. Um, all right. I'm going to start with one that I bet you guys will see as a left field pick. But if you think about it, she starts off the decade with an Oscar win in 1990 and just keeps going for there. She was in film, television, um, even on, um, I believe she may have started a talk show in the decade, but certainly later. And I'm going with Whoopi Goldberg. Ghost in 1990, Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Um, she goes on to Sister Act, which may not be as critically acclaimed as Ghost, but it is a hit in its own right. And I enjoyed Sister Act. You know, it's an easy family rental. Of course, she was on Star Trek The Next Generation. 
Uh, she did a sequel to Sister Act, The Lion King. Um, just looking for the other one she did in the decade. A couple of terrible ones, but uh, she she gets back on on the the good stuff later in the decade. I think she was kind of uh, that's when the decade when Whoopi Goldberg became an absolute juggernaut a lister. That's my hot take on that. It, it's a decent five. That's all I'll give you on, on that. Even though I, I do like Whoopi, decent five. Girl interrupted. Go ahead. Sorry, what did you say? I said girl interrupted was uh, the the one in '99. So she she's got bookends, you know. I I commend the bold choice. I feel like I still have such a a visceral dislike for the movie Eddie, which I yeah. definitely haven't seen since it came out. But I know how terrible it was even then. Uh, I think that was just sort of an all encompassing. Uh, but it's not I, you can't hold one movie against someone for their entire career. Or can no. I? <laughs> Eddie was pretty damn bad, man. I, I noticed I didn't read it, but yeah, I glossed <laughs> right over that one. All right. Before I go into my number five, I want to give one honorable mention. And normally we do our honorable mentions after, but it wouldn't have the same effect that I wanted to have. Because my number six, I really wanted to squeeze this guy on my, my list. Before the, the kids called Justin Timberlake JT, we used to call this guy JTT. I'm talking about Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Oh my God, did this guy have a decade? Jonathan Taylor Thomas was, uh, I believe, the, the middle son on Home Improvement Show. And then he jumped into film in 1994 in The Lion King. He voiced uh, young Simba. Yeah, he went on to He went on to be uh, in the movie Man of the House, Tom and Huck, The Adventures of Pinocchio. He voiced Wild America, I'll Be Home for Christmas. It, it keeps going on. Um, Speedway Junkie. Jonathan Taylor Thomas, my honorable mention, um, and totally 90s kid that just fizzled out. I don't know what happened to the, the poor guy, but uh, boy, JTT, we remember him. Almost got a tattoo, JTT, but glad I didn't, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, right, we're glad to, you did, too. <laughs> on to my true when, number when did, five. When did that almost happen? Was that growing up or recently? <laughs> just recently. I was at a bar and I was talking about how great JTT was and people were like, no way, man. No way. I was like, oh, yeah, JTT. All right. Now for real, my number five pick, heavy hitter. And you couldn't go more different than from Jonathan Taylor Thomas to this guy who wins an Oscar in 89 and then starting in 90. It just becomes an event every time this guy comes out with the movie. I'm talking about Denzel Washington. And 1990, he just couldn't stop working. It was like every year. Um, and starting in 1990 with Mo Better Blues, and then we got Malcolm X in 92, which I still think is his best performance. Much, to, much, much Ado About Nothing, The Pelican Brief, Philadelphia Opposite Tom Hanks, Crimson Tide, Devil in a Blue Dress, Courage Under Fire, The Preacher's Wife, The Siege, The Bone Collector, The Hurricane, all in the 1990s. Denzel was just on an absolute roll every single year. He had a, a, a big movie come out. It was crazy. He's arguably the best actor of all time. I mean, you could make that he's case. Up there. He's up there. Yeah, he is. He's great. Denzel, he's not one who just stuck to the 90s, though. You were saying at the top that you really I, not tried. Not on all of them. I know. Not on all. But I, I'm, you'll see as my list. That's all only right. one pick. 
Only one pick. Definitely can't argue with with Denzel. Uh, Love Crimson Tide. That movie holds up so well. Uh, although if there's one thing no one, I don't think anyone has ever said before about Denzel Washington is that he's the exact opposite of Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. I think, I think that's true. It happens here on Cinema Jaw. That's what we do. <laughs> Into our fours we go. Matt Pace, what do you got? So now I'm looking at my list and feeling like it's just so incredibly uh, predictable. Um, so as as I'm sort of reviewing, but at the same time, I I think there are some people that are sort of so undeniable that that I I'm sticking with it. So for number four, I'm going with Julia Roberts, someone who I think there was a time where. I was really interested in the things that she did. Then there was a time that at some point I decided that I really didn't like her for some reason. And I've definitely come back around in recent years. Uh, Of course, Pretty Woman was globe changing. Uh, That was just when you talk about a breakout role, it doesn't really get bigger than that. And of course, she's she's known for romantic comedies. like my best friend's wedding um, or runaway bride or something. But I know nobody else likes the movie. I love trouble, but there's a Chicago set movie that I liked when it came out and I still enjoy it. And that is one of, one of the least acclaimed movies I think that I like. Um, And I'm fine with that. Um, She and Nick Nolte hated each other. That's fine. The age difference is a problem for sure. But there, there's a weird theme throughout her career, actually, with very large age differences between her and her leading man. Um, that aside, you really cannot argue with the things that she did. Also, because it wasn't just the romantic comedies, Hook, The Pelican Brief, as, as Brian mentioned, too, and, and Notting Hill. Notting Hill is so such a lovely movie i don't describe mm-hmm. a lot of movies as lovely but notting hill is just lovely um <laughs> and and i appreciate julia roberts uh the 90s was hers was sleeping with the enemy in the 90s or, or is that 80s? it was that was that was, yeah, 90s that was 91 also? i think yeah i was gonna Underrated. ask if pretty woman was is 90s i thought that was like 89 i believe that's 90 all right mm. um won't fact check you on that. Yeah. Close enough. 90 and 90. I get everything mixed up with like 90 and 91, but I know that those were both definitely in the 90s. It's possible I'm off by a year with 90 versus 91. Um, I am a big hook apologist. I, I know a lot of people poop on hook. I poop. loved it. I think it just hit me in the nostalgia it, forming days. Like, so now I go back and Tinkerbell, her performance, um, it was just I don't know. It was it was pure. It was uh, joyful, and I, I kind of had the hots for Tinkerbell. I'm going to be honest is, with you guys. I remember walking out of Hook and saying, "The only thing that was missing was Jonathan Taylor Thomas." <laughs> this is true. He well, would have fit mention, right in. I it, should mention I would. I wouldn't be doing my job to promote my book if I didn't mention that I did speak with Charlie Corsmo of Hook and Dick Tracy, and What About Bob, and Can Hardly Wait. And there's someone who I did not think was going to be interested in talking with me for for this book. He's a law professor and has been out of the industry for quite a while, but he was incredibly uh, joyful on the phone, just 
just really excited to talk about a lot of things. And, and I was, um, that was, that was a good get of someone that didn't, didn't make it out of the nineties, but did a, a lot of good things uh, in that time. He did. He really did. I, I, I liked that interview in particular. That was one of the, the most interesting ones for me. All right. Uh, that swings it back to me, right? For my number mm-hmm. four, I'm, I'm going with a big one. Uh, a heavy hitter came out of the gates uh, strong at the beginning of the decade with Total Recall and followed it up with Basic Instinct and Casino, the last action hero, Sharon Stone. I think she dominated the 90s in terms of the sex symbol department. She was perhaps the the the, the best femme fatale, um, sexy female character that we had at the time. And of course, Basic Instinct, a bit notorious for that scene of her uh, uncrossing her legs and crossing her legs in the, in the police station. Again, another scene that maybe doesn't play to d- today's audience in quite the same light. But she she had a power. She had a command over over the screen. And and I love me some Sharon Stone from the 90s. I, I like that pick. And, and it actually goes right into mine because I think I would argue who who was the sort of the sex symbol of the 90s because Ooh. my my number four pick gives Sharon Stone, I think, a run for the money. And I, I we could almost do a poll question on who it would be one, two, because Demi Moore is my number four pick. And a little bit different uh, sexy kind of symbol, but definitely had her moment with um, the two back-to-back movies. Uh, let me find them here. Um, Indecent Proposal and then Disclosure uh, with Michael Douglas um, back-to-back. But she kicks off the decade with Ghost. She's in uh, Nothing But Trouble, The Butcher's Wife, a few good men. Then she yeah, does the wow. two sexy ones. Indecent uh, proposal with Robert Redford. Disclosure. She goes. You're forgetting Scar- striptease, which was oh, another I, very. I, I'm getting there. All right, the all Scarlet right. Letter. Now and then she's just a, a smaller role. The Juror, which was a thriller, not bad. Striptease, 1996. Beavis and Butthead do America. She's one of the it's, voices. It's Let's cameo. not forget yeah. that. All right, but she's in there. Um, and then we got G.I. Jane in 97, um, Deconstructing Harry. All these people, once they got big, they had to be in a Woody Allen movie. She does the Deconstructing Harry. It's one of my favorites, actually. She's in um, uh, one more. No, that, that was basically it. So all of those, and, and just her moment was the 90s. This is one of those where, not saying she didn't have a career afterwards, but definitely the 90s was the decade of Demi Moore and then diminishing returns after the 90s for sure. I'm going to go with you on that. I don't know if, yeah, I mean, really. What do you mean go with that? Of course you are. I'm looking right at everything else after that. There's not much. Yeah. All right. No, I said I'll go with you on that, man. I I felt like she had a few in the aughts, but uh, you're probably right. Those are both good. I, I had Sharon Stone and Demi Moore. When I made my preliminary list of people to consider, they were both on here. I think those are both really solid. Uh, my number three is Wesley Snipes. Yeah. Someone, <laughs> Blade himself. Someone who... Passenger 57 was the first R-rated movie I ever saw. And he, between that and Demolition Man, 
uh, he just made such a big uh, impact in the action world and White Men Can't Jump, of course, he's hilarious in, and he he's a, a really talented, versatile actor. And of course he was in uh, Waiting to Exhale and Tu Wong Fu, uh, had a number of movies that sort of get relegated to the, the back of the video store, like The Fan or Murder at 1600 or something like that. But I, I definitely think he's an actor who um, never really, a drop zone too, uh, never really, even if the movie wasn't any good, I don't think it made you feel any differently about him. Uh, of course, he was in uh, New Jack City, Jungle Fever. Um, he's, he's an important actor for the 90s, certainly, and someone that I... I I get the feeling that people are still kind of rooting for. Uh, I definitely am rooting for. And I think one of the things about Snipes that, that he gave was he, he gave to pop culture in two big ways in the nineties, the hairstyle he has in um, demolition man became, he famously hated it, didn't want to do it, but then it just became very popular. And the other thing was the don't bet on uh, or always bet on black from, I think that was, was that new Jack city? No, no, no. Right, right, right. That that's stuck. That's stuck. I mean, you 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 still hear people say that to this day. So, there you go. I like I like me some snipes. Yeah, I agree. I I was shocked that this video store has three copies of the fan. I don't know who's renting the fan that they have three (laughs) copies of it, but strange. Uh, Whoever Um, they are, they got to be a fan. Yeah, I agree. Matt, you're number three. Matt K. (laughs) Sorry, my pun threw me off. A terrible, terrible pun. All right. Number three, I am going with Bruce Willis. The The big guns are coming out. Bruce Willis, it, it, totally, totally undeniable 90 star. Where I think definitely Die Hard made Bruce Willis into the action star that he was in the 90s. And that was 88, I think. He The 90s were where he dominated. I mean, the last Boy Scout... Armageddon, Fifth Element, and Pulp Fiction was a big one, and 12 Monkeys. Those five films alone encompass like uh, probably 60% of my VHS rentals. You know, I would just (laughs) watch these movies again and again and again. Love every single one of them for various reasons, but Fifth Element, especially, obviously, Pulp Fiction, but Fifth Element, especially, is one that that I just burned down because I'm a fan for sucker for sci fi. Yeah, I, I looked into me. It was an honorable mention of mine, and he closes out the decade with a sixth sense, sense in '99. Yeah, how could I which forget? Which was absolutely crazy that he had another big one, and and it was it felt. I know I remember thinking he needed that sixth sense because he had that like, you know, bit of a hum- dip. Yeah, he had a small dip. He had this like just you know huge uh, first half of the '90s, and then it dipped down a little bit, and then he came right back at the end of the decade with the sixth sense, which has got to be one of his biggest movies of all time. So yeah. And Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Big decade for Bruce. Well, I'm going with another heavy hitter here, Matt. I think my, my three, two and one all could have arguably been a number one. My number three, this guy started the decade on an all time high. And then he just rode the whole decade uh, through. He wins best director and best picture in 1990 for dances with wolves. My number three pick Kevin Costner, who dominated the 90s. This was his decade. Let me tell you, 90 
Dances with Wolves. 91, what a year. Right after Dances with Wolves, he goes with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and JFK, Oliver Stone. These were big movies at the time. Oh, yeah. Nine, 92, he comes right back with the, I mean, just an absolute blockbuster, The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston. Then he oh, goes, wow. 93, A Perfect World, uh, which was directed by Clint Eastwood. And then in 94, he's got Wyatt Earp and The War. This is when things get a little shaky, but these are still big blockbuster movies. Yeah. 95, Waterworld. 96, Mm. Tin Cup. 97, The Postman. And that's when things really start getting rickety on uh, Costner. He's trying to get out of the decade still in in top form, and he's sliding down. Um, And he comes back a little bit in 99 because he's busy as hell. He's got three movies, Message in a Bottle, For the Love of the Game, and Play It to the Bone. So he closes out the decade in decent form. He never quite is as good as he was in the early 90s, actually late 80s there too, when you're talking the untouchables. He was like peaking at the late 80s into the 90s was his big run, Kevin Costner. He's, I feel like he's, he's back. Oh, I'm not part. saying like, that he's not. I mean, obviously, I, I have not seen Yellowstone, Yellowstone but yeah. obviously a massive you know, hit. And he just walked out of the cornfields in the... Uh, Field of Dreams game yeah, a, a year did. ago, and and it was like the most dramatic thing I had seen. I had tears in my eyes. So the guy's still got it, you know. He does. Right, rise a sucker for uh, for baseball. I am. I am. Uh, that was my number three, Kevin Costner into our twos, Matt. That that was a good pick, Ryan. That's you. You rattled off the list, and that's that's the nineties for you, Kevin Costner in the nineties for yep. sure. So here's where we get to the point where. I really don't want to do this person, (laughs) but I feel like I have to. Um, This isn't a list of our favorite humans. Um, Don't worry, I'm not going to say Mel Gibson. It's not Mel Gibson, but it is Tom Cruise. (laughs) Um, Like, come on. Days of Thunder, A Few Good Men, Far and Away. That, that beginning to the 90s, all right. But then you got to The Firm, Interview with the Vampire, Mission Impossible, Jerry Maguire, Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia. That is like a solid beginning that just really escalates. And of course, it's not as if he wasn't a big deal before the 90s, but the 90s turned Tom Cruise into a whole other level of big. And of course, we know... Uh, what he's still doing now in terms of uh, the Mission Impossible series. And he's, and, and now Top Gun, of course, he, he doesn't stop. And this is setting everything aside about who he is off screen. But for an actor in the 90s, that's, that's almost as big as it could get. I agree. He he almost went to a level that we hadn't quite seen. You know, there's big, really big. There's movie star big, and then there's Tom Cruise big, right? He's he's yeah. just he he just goes one extra level up. It seems. No no arguments, man. I mean, despite his his somewhat uh, let let's say um, peppered uh, personal life, it's almost impossible to not have respect for Tom Cruise in terms of his career. Um, yeah, I'm a fan. I'm gonna be honest. I really like his work a lot. All right. Uh, my number two, I will just say, whoa, 
It's Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I was wondering if he was going to come up in the 90s. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, he is. Because we got bi- the better Bill and Ted movie, I would argue, in the bogus journey. And yes. then in, in 1991, he's got the one-two punch of my own private Idaho and Point Break. Mm. And in 94, you got Speed. These are films that define the decade, in, in my opinion. And then he comes in... Uh, Oh man, I lost the year. But he's he's back with with uh, Francis Ford Coppola in Dracula, which was a humongous hit. And then he's um, working with Kenneth Branagh in Much Ado About Nothing, and then uh, Bernardo Bertolucci in Little Buddha, which I haven't seen, but uh, I gotta I gotta catch up with that one. He had a little bit of a a dip there, and then Devil's Advocate with Al Pacino. He is the 90s. I mean, he was kind of in his prime in his youth. He was trying to see, like, people were saying, is this a leading man? We don't know. I love me some Keanu Reeves. Love him I, big time. I, I just saw they, they released John Wick trailer, uh, John Wick 4 trailer. Did you watch it? <laughs> I did finally see it. It's wild. I love that. It just keeps getting bigger and crazier. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't wait. I love the John Wick series. And I'll just jump in real fast to say, talk about the opposite of Tom Cruise as a human. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank just you for so following down to Tom Earth. Cruise with Keanu Reeves. There you we go. We need that. Balance it out. All right. My number two pick is what I was talking about. With, like, this is somebody that is quintessential 1990s whole career. Yes, still working today and on a very big TV show, but really made her name in the 1990s. Um, and I, I'm going to list all of these movies because I think Matt's going to give me gruff when he hears me say that Winona Ryder is my number two pick for dominating the 90s. But Matt, one of your favorite movies, we just talked about it, Edward Scissorhands. Absolutely. She was in, in 1990, along with Mermaids also that year. Then she's in Bram Stoker's Drac- Dracula as well. With Keanu. Absolutely. She's in The Age of Innocence, which is a Marty Scorsese film. She's in Reality Bites, which is absolutely a 90s movie, right? This is, again, a very defining moment of the 90s is Reality Bites. That same year, she's in Little Woman. uh, And 95, very big movie, was more Oscar bait. How to Make an American Quilt, still notable. Boys, she was in The Crucible. Then in 97, she's in Alien Resurrection. Here comes the Woody Allen movie in 98. She's in Celebrity. 99, she's in, in Girl Interrupted, and she plays herself in Being John Malkovich in 99 as well. Wow, but she I, did? I didn't remember I, that. Okay. Again, the 90s is Winona Ryder's time. You know, Yes, she's on Stranger Things now, and she's had other movies throughout her career, but really, bam, she hit it and hit it big in the 1990s. Hey, I have a really arduous fish tank uh question for phil can you tell us roughly we won't hold you to this how many of our picks have been in woody allen movies (laughs) i'm just curious i think it's a lot of them all right into our number ones here we go matt pace in your opinion who dominated the decade and shockingly we have not crossed over yet and I can't believe anybody's not going to have my number one as their number one. I'm so sure of that. I have the number one pick. Who do you think dominated the decade in the 90s, Matt? 
That is pretty cool that we haven't had anyone in common yet. I'm surprised. Uh, this feels obligatory to me, though. Uh, that even though he had success before the 90s also, uh, the 90s was when Tom Hanks became yes. Tom Hanks. There it is. Let me even ring the bell for that one. That is my number one as well. And and I wanted to make this, when I thought if I was only going to have it, I wanted to say this specifically. I think he dominates the decade of the 90s more so than any other actor ever dominated a decade Ooh, in the history you, of Hollywood. You, you haven't heard my number one, you guys. But go it's, on. it's not as good as Tom Hanks. Wow. Talk about Tom Hanks. Okay, we haven't heard Matt's Pauly Shore segment yet. So <laughs> Damn it, how did you that. guess? Um, but I, I think that's a, a, an interesting statement, Rye. Well, I'll have to think about that. But not only did he win back-to-back -back Oscars, of course, for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump, but just... Apollo 13, Sleepless in Seattle, uh, writing and directing that thing you do, and then playing a small part in that too. Saving Private Ryan, his his role in A League of Their Own is extraordinary. Uh, of course, he had uh, Toy Story and Toy Story 2. Uh, he just, it was an unbelievable run. And I didn't even mention everything, but just I, incredible. Yeah, I mean, for him. I, I mean, just this... Sleepless in Seattle, Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, Toy Story, That Thing You Do, Saving Private Ryan, You've Got Mail, Toy Story 2. That, that all happened in a row for Tom Hanks. And that, that is, just doesn't happen to anybody else without like a dud in there or, okay, he was slowing down. It was like literally every movie he was doing was a blockbuster. And it was like must-see stuff and it was acclaimed, like you said, back-to-back -back Oscars, which I think has only happened one other time in the history of the Academy Awards as far as Best Actor goes. So, And it's weird that we're now in the place where it seems like he's just sort of saying, eh, whatever, in terms of what he's taking on. Um, that list that, that we just shared was him being great in really good to great movies and showing a real knack for choosing the right projects and having versatility and just doing it right every time. And when people talk about sort of the lack of movie stars and, and names that bring people out to the theater anymore, this was when, oh, there's a new Tom Hanks movie. People took that seriously. No doubt. Uh, yeah. No doubt. It's, it's very, very tough to argue against Tom Hanks. I, I have nothing but love in my heart for the guy. I think so, he's one of the best actors alive. So obviously me, me and Matt Pace have Tom Hanks at number one. We're, we're letting Matt close it out here, right. Matt K, that is. And can I take a guess at your number one? Yeah, sure. Take a stab. Okay. Did he star in Pump Up the Volume? No. No, no. Okay. I didn't go that direction. I thought you I, were going Christian Slater. I thought that's where you were going to go with your number you're one. You're right. You know, and, and it's a natural, especially after talking about Winona Ryder. But I think, especially after that Tom Hanks, there's really only one actor who could possibly even approach the same category. And I'll just say it. I'll just come out and say his name. It's, it's Robin Williams, who's unfortunately left us. But in the 90s, Robin Williams dominated. I'll, I'll, I'll do the list. Here we go. And unfortunately, Dead Poet Society fell in 1989. But he's got two big ones in 90, Cadillac Man and Awakenings. Then he's, he, he comes back. He's in Shakes the Clown, which I think is an underrated classic. 
The Fisher King in 91, Hook in 91. Uh, he does a Fern, Fern Gully voice, which say what you want about Fern Gully, but you can't say too many bad things about Aladdin when he was the genie in a breakout role that everybody thought was crazy. Toys is so-so. Then we get Mrs. Doubtfire in 93. We're only in 93. Being Human, somewhat forgettable. To Wong Fu, which we mentioned before. Then in 95, we're only halfway through, Jumanji hits. Then in 96, The Birdcage. Uh, Jack was forgettable, but he comes back again in Woody Allen's Deconstructing Harry in 97. Follows that up in the same year with Flubber, which is a kid's movie, but somewhat well-received by the kid's audience. But then also in 97, <laughs> Good Will Hunting. All right, Good Will Hunting. 98 is What Dreams May Come and Patch Adams uh, starting to go down a little bit. But then we get yeah, Jacob yeah. the Liar and then Bicentennial Man, which is another like great sci-fi underrated gem. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned about five good movies out of that whole list. Are you, know you kidding I mean? me? No, which I'm ones not were kidding bad? you. There were, the it, ones that were bad, I said these weren't the best, but the others really are amazing. You really oversold the birdcage. I mean, you're like, then he was in the birdcage. Like, <laughs> How yeah, did I oversell the birdcage? You don't like the birdcage? <laughs> no. Really? Oh, I like the birdcage. That was a great movie. I'm not sure I've heard a better sentence in months than, and then he followed that up with flubber. <laughs> Hey guys, listen. Oh, that's great. When you've got a career like Robin Williams, you've earned yourself a flubber. All right. It was a Disney oh, paycheck, man. but it reached its target audience and it was beloved by the children of the oh, era. I great. did not the way that you set that up, I thought there was a chance you were going to say Will Smith or Brad Pitt or Nicolas Cage or something. I did not think that the, all that uh, <laughs> anticipation was leading up to Robin Williams. I kudos for for the choice. I don't really see it, but really, but that no. <laughs> oh, I am shocked. You're you're serious. Robin Williams was huge. I not had compared him as a, to the others that we didn't even say. Yeah, especially not Tom Hanks. I did have. I will say I had <sighs> wow, Robin guys, Williams. I disagree. <laughs> I had Rob, Robin Williams as an honorable mention, but didn't make my list. A lot of notable films, notable, but they're not all like Flubber and the Birdcagers. Okay, well, the Flubber and the that Birdcage, like, fine, but my God, he's Dude, there were huge movies in there. Are you kidding me? I mean, they're, even, they're, even Jumanji is not that great. Like, for, for they're that still to be making the, sequels. So? <laughs> I mean, it must have been a, a, a success for them to make sequels to this day. But, but that doesn't mean anything in terms of quality. And the I new ones cool. have nothing to do. I, I haven't seen any of the new Jumanjis. Aren't they totally different than the 95 one? They are. Somewhat. But what about Aladdin? Solid. That's a good pick, Sol no doubt. Solid? Are you? You're kidding me? So, it's Aladdin no, it's no is a Tom Disney Hanks and, as Woody. You know what I mean? But it's solid. Uh, it, it's, it might be better. It's a great vocal performance, but it's also not. How can I say this respectfully? It's not out of his wheelhouse by any means. Like they wanted that, and they got that from Robin Williams very deliberately, as he's extremely memorable in that role it's fantastic there um i gotta stop saying fantastic i need a new <laughs> adjective um but but I, if if we're looking at people who solidified themselves 
in terms of the roles that they chose and the quality of the movies that they were in and also just what they showed us that they could do. I don't even even Aladdin. I don't I think that was a cultural, a massive cultural thing, but it also is so high above a lot of the other things he did. I, I, I think Robin Williams would be a totally fine, honorable mention. I respect your choice, but I don't agree. Awakenings and Goodwill Hunting are the bookends of the decade there. And two of the best dramatic roles the guy ever played. Show some range. All right. Well, you could we agree to disagree on Robin Williams. Other I honorable, obviously high him in way higher esteem. Other honorable mentions that uh, did not come up. Meg Ryan, huge for sure. Uh, huge decade for the 90s for Meg Harrison Ford pretty decent 90s they're they're not as iconic roles that we we know them as you know Harrison Ford and Indy were already done but then 90 he actually had a you know fugitive yeah Air he Force had some, one some good hits in there for sure yep. and then John Cusack uh I thought had a really good decade of the 90s Th- those were my honorables and Val Kilmer Val Kilmer last oh, wow. one that that yeah. did not come up Bad and Martigan. Honorable mentions for you guys. I'll make a quick mention of Jim Carrey. Yeah. I got him uh, on my short list. Ace Ventura, of course, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Cable Guy, Liar Liar. Uh, and more importantly to me, like The Truman Show and Man on the Moon. Um, but even no matter what you think of those, that list of comedies, that that's a good representation of the type of thing that people were willing to make in the 90s and that a lot of kids liked at that time. Uh, and kind of like flubber. <laughs> what about flubber is the question we should ask ourselves on a daily basis. Uh, and I'll also throw to, I know that uh, he's already being talked about a lot this year. I haven't seen the whale yet, but yeah. Brendan Fraser simply for school ties alone um, and Encino man too. And other airheads, things, but <laughs> not airheads. Why not Airheads? No, not Airheads. I'm learning a lot about our taste in movies, Matt, and how they... <laughs> it's okay to disagree. Yeah, uh, it is. I, I like a lot of dumb stuff, for sure. Um, but there are a few that fall outside that range, and Airheads is one of them. I, I could still... If Encino Man was on TV, I would watch it. If Airheads was on, I wouldn't. Oh, my God. Fl- what? Flubber and Airheads to the right. Encino Man to the left. <laughs> Airheads is notable for uh, if you ever need a connection, if you're playing Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, that Brendan Fraser and Steve Buscemi are in the same movie. So for that, wow. for that, you need it. Some bit of tri- trivia that was Matt, uh, Matt Kay. I got honorable mentions for you. The only one of my honorable mentions that hasn't been um, stolen or, or I shouldn't say stolen mentioned is um, Billy Crystal, who, again, is somebody who was huge before the 90s, but had a great decade. Jawheads, if we missed your favorite actor or actress that dominated the decade of the 90s and you have Twitter pulled up, shoot us a tweet. We are at CinemaJaw or you can always email us. We are at feedback at CinemaJaw.com. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have a retro look at Clueless 1995. Plus, Matt is taking Matt on in Glass Onion movie trivia. Stick with us. We continue celebrating Michelle Williams this month, and this week, since we're doing the 1990s, I wanted to focus on a role that Michelle Williams had in that decade. And, all right, I could have played something from Dawson's Creek, but she had a great comedy at the end of the decade, 1999 to be precise. The film was called Dick, 
in which Michelle Williams starred opposite Kirsten Dunst in this comedy, and here the two talk to none other than Richard Nixon. Well, let me tell you something. It won't protect them from me. Actually, it was just about the dog. You act like you like him, but we don't think you do. What dog? But now that you mention it, you know, a lot of people are talking about this Watergate thing, and they all say that you lied, and I'm Jewish. I know. Had you checked out. There's probably more in there than you know about yourselves. Even grades? Yeah, grades. Your parents' income tax returns. Overdue library books. The whole kit and caboodle. Is there stuff about my father in there? Where was he? A lady's shoe salesman at Garfinkel's or some such place. Got hit by a garbage truck at the age of 24. Your mom never said it was a garbage truck. Strictly small time, never amounted to much. Well, at least he wasn't a liar. We heard that tape. What'd you hear? You kid checkers and your prejudice and you have a potty mouth! You're a bad man. You stinking little idiots, get the hell out of here. You don't ever come back here again, okay? Cinema Jaws brought to you by the guys over at Cracking the Code of Spy Movies podcast. If you're into spy movies and you're into podcasts, you should definitely listen to this one. Then you know what? I'll let them tell you about it. You love spy movies? Well, our show is all about spy movies from the classics like The 39 Steps, The Ipcris File, to James Bond, Mission Impossible, and current releases like No Time to Die. This is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. Just go to your favorite podcast app and search Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Do the same on YouTube. Our show decodes key scenes, dives into connections and influences from other movies, does interviews with actors and directors, and keeps you informed with our spy movie news segment, all while having fun. Podcasts and YouTube videos. Join us on Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. And we are back on Cinema Jaw, hanging out with Matt Pace. His new book entitled Talk 90s With Me is out now. It's a great gift to get someone that wants to read about the 90s. You can pick it up anywhere books are sold. Do it, Jawheads. Yeah, especially people who are like in their mid-40s and are into pop culture. You know, that's that's who that's would enjoy that a book like this. Yeah, definitely Jawheads. Pick it up. It is called Talk 90s With Me, and the link is in our show notes. Before we get to trivia and talk clueless we threw a few items into the fish tank and phil pulling double duty here because we're we're at his place of employment in this video store phil i know you're here this week how you doing buddy wait a moment it's fish isn't it dc wake up wake up no pad it's a giant glass bowl hey get some fish folk who's coming with me besides Flipper, here. That's a second message. That means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. You're gonna need a bigger boat. 
Thank you. Uh, underpaid on all accounts, but that's all right. Uh, you know, the nice thing about splitting my time between Seattle and this mountaintop is that uh, when I'm here on the mountaintop, there's really not anything to do on a Saturday night. So I don't spend a lot of money, and that's okay. Uh, that being said... We do. Oh my goodness, we have. It's really. It's only four questions. Uh, but maybe one and a half of these, I'll say, was like a was a doozy. Uh, <laughs> our first one was really easy, though. Pretty straightforward. How many times has Matt Pace been on the show? Uh, so this would be Matt's fourth appearance. Oh, okay. Uh, there were three times prior. Uh, the first, and this is a holy shit moment, dating all the way back to episode 96 from 2011 uh wow long long time over yeah over 10 almost 11 years ago wow. it, it must have been two times at mother's then for sure yep when we were recording at the bar yeah i was trying to yes that was a long time ago okay it was Four. yeah awesome. Uh, the next one is take this waltz streaming and oh baby it is and in a lot of places so buckle up everybody uh, I would also like to point out that if you were in the mountaintop greater metropolitan area we are also it is available for rent here on VHS but uh, <clears throat> It is also available for streaming included in your subscriptions to Hulu, Fubo, and Magnolia Selects, whatever that is. Uh, it's also available with ads, but for free, on Vudu, Tubi, Redbox, Pluto, and Crackle, and... Atop this this shining mountain, God smiles upon us because you you yes you can watch Take This Waltz absolutely for free with your library card from your favorite streaming service and mine. I always love it when I see it. It's on Hoopla. <laughs> he, he is Boy, really excited about I Hoopla, know. Phil. Phil. Hoopla is awesome. <laughs> Hoopla is like that the that your library allows you to. It's awesome. Hoopla's awesome. You should have. If, I know I've said this a thousand times on this show, but if you don't have Hoopla or Canopy, you can even say Phil from Cinema Jaw is annoyed. Right? Write a letter to your library. <laughs> they should be doing this for you. I just uh, like saying great Hoopla. Service. Me too. It's fun to say. <laughs> uh, different streaming service related question when does glass onion come out on netflix uh very 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 soon uh december 23rd is when it's coming out so only a few more weeks for everybody not Boy. a few more weeks few more days especially after this drops yeah december december oh, not december november. i thought you said december november. Yeah. december 23rd. oh december okay yeah yeah christmas time uh, then our last one, and this one was, was a bit, this one was the whopper. Sorry. Uh, how many of these picks? Well, really, I could have half-assed it. You gave me the roughly and like you really enforced it, but then I took it to the umpteenth degree. So that's on me for overachieving. Uh, how many of the top five picks have been in Woody Allen movies? So, all right. Uh, technically there's 14 actors because Tom Hanks was here twice. Of our 14, there's actually less than you'd think. Only six. Three out of seven. Six out of 14 have worked with Woody Allen. And even at that, that is 
a little dicey. It's I think what we're thinking of is working with Woody Allen would probably be four. Uh, so Julia Roberts was in Everyone Says I Love You. Robin Williams and Demi Moore were in Deconstructing Harry. And Winona Ryder was in Celebrity. There's the four that, that are like solid, no arguments. We're all in agreement. Uh, Sharon Stone, never directed by Woody Allen. However, she did co-star with Woody Allen in the John Turturro-directed Fading Gigolo. Uh, that's like four and a half, maybe five. I would actually count that pretty firmly. Uh, and then Bruce Willis, uh, originally hired to be in Cafe Society and was filming for Cafe Society. However, there were scheduling conflicts because Bruce Willis was also performing in the Broadway adaptation of Stephen King's Misery. Uh, which I did not know that incredible. Yeah. Wow. Incredible that that existed. Incredible that Bruce Willis was involved. Every incredible that he, cause he also, he got fired from cafe society, uh, and replaced with Steve Carell because of that conflict. Incredible that he got fired to be in Stephen King's misery, the Broadway adaptation. Uh, everything about that is amazing. Uh, so maybe six, if you count that he did that and then got fired. I've worked plenty of jobs I've gotten fired from, and damn it, I worked there. Just don't get fired from here. But I'm also not putting them on my resume. I can't lose either of these jobs, Matt. Thanks yeah. for reminding me. Well, I, I also hear that they, there's no, like, you know, uh, severance package. They just sever your head. Yeah. yeah. So be yeah. careful. And yet they don't need, I can't even send it to insurance. I don't know what the code is for it. Ugh. And a quick note Ooh. to say that if anyone hasn't seen Fading Gigolo, please keep it that way. That movie is horrendous. <laughs> there we go. Was that everything, Phil? That's all we got. Jump back in that fish tank. Oh, you bet. The year was 1995. Grunge was king. Some people were wondering if the high school comedy was dead. That's when writer-director Amy Hackling said, as if, on July 19th of that year, she gave us Clueless, a film that starred Alicia Silverstone and Paul Rudd. It became an instant classic, grossing over $56 million at the box office against a slim $12 million budget. It had everyone rolling with their homies. Matt Kay, Matt Pace, and I visited Beverly Hills to see how the film holds up. He gave me a C minus. <laughs> well, he gave me a C, which drags down my entire average. Hello? There was a stop sign. I totally paused. You tried driving in platforms. Oh, should I write them a note? <gasps> Ew! Get off of me! Ah, oh, as if. Cher's got attitude about high school boys. It's a personal choice everyone has got to make for themselves. Cher is saving herself for Luke Perry. Cher, you're a virgin? I mean, I'm not prude. I'm just highly selective. I mean, you see how picky I am about my shoes, and they only go on my feet. I had a blast rewatching Clueless for this retro review. I don't have to go into the plot specifics because I think most people listening to this have a, a, are familiar with the film. 
Very quickly, Alicia Silverstone plays Cher, a popular high school student who seems to look down on all her peers, except for Dion, played by then 29-year-old Stacy Dash. They eventually help a new student played by Brittany Murphy. Cher finds love. The film itself is quintessential 1990s. The soundtrack rocks. As a Radiohead fan, I'm happy to say there are two of their songs featured in the film, plus some fun covers of David Bowie and even Jewel singing All By Myself. The fashion is wild. It showcases all different groups of high school high schoolers perfectly. If I had to point out one aspect that I think really made this film special, I would say it's the witty, high-energy script by Amy Hack- Hackerling. So many catchy, catchy phrases and hilarious lines throughout, and delivering many of those lines is Alicia Silverstone, who gives the performance of her career. She can never top this iconic 90s role. This is a very easy watch. I've seen it numerous times throughout the years, and it was still a blast to watch it this time around. How'd you feel, Matt Kay? Uh, I mean, I agree, although I would say that the funniest line in the entire movie is actually uh, Dash's line when when they say, my doctor gave me a note that I can't do anything where balls fly at my face. And she says, well, there goes your social life. Best line boom, in the movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the soundtrack. It opens up with the muffs. Uh, her voice is is one of my favorites of all time. She sings uh, the Lori Myers part on uh, NoFX's song, Lori Myers. I'm wearing the t-shirt. L- love it. Um, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones are actually playing a party that they go to. Um, yeah, man. It's quintessential 90s. It's also very, very uh, Beverly Hills, like Valley Girl type. Amy Heckerling, she she gave us uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which I think is, is kind of like very specific to its era. And then she gives us um, this movie. There were a few in between, of course, but... Wow, what a filmmaker she is. Those are two such iconic tentpole movies that you point to as being like the quintessential movie of their decade, of their era. Yeah, I think it holds up. There are some, you know, like we've said a couple times in this episode, when you look back at movies, things that probably wouldn't fly today. But, you know, it was a a product of its time. Not the least of which being the creepy love story between her and her almost stepbrother which is kind of at the center of the film. So I wanted to say, I remember distinctly the very first time seeing this, I I was convinced of like, I think I missed the aspect, you know, not paying enough attention back then. I missed that. It wasn't actually brother and sister. I remember thinking like, Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. I remember being like, what is going on? Wait, is it just a stepbrother? And even then it's really gross. I didn't know what to make of this movie. The very first time I saw it, um, this time it's pretty clear that they're not technically related. Um, but right. It, but the fact that you have to say the word technically <laughs> for me, that there's a bunch of red flags, you know, uh, it's still weird. It was weird then, but that aside, like if you could take that one little detail that was completely unnecessary out of the movie, it's, it's just so charming and breezy. And like you said, uh, just an easy watch. Yeah. And, and we didn't mention even that it's loosely based on Emma, and so a lot of these characters are, 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 you know, sort of recreations of, of the Emma story. Um, Matt Pace, what, what'd you think of your revisit with Clueless? So Alicia, 
Alicia Silverstone deserves every good thing that can be said about her in this movie. The casting director could not have done better in, in making that choice. Absolutely. I, I appreciate the cult status of this movie and how quotable it probably still is for some people. I do think that it falls into a category of where sometimes something becomes so quotable that that winds up almost fooling people into thinking that something is a better movie than it actually is. I always found Clueless a little bit underwhelming in terms of what is actually going on. It seems like it creates this world where you'd think there would be this swirling energy and just the, the interplay between so many characters. And yet people may or may not remember that this was turned into a sitcom for a few years after the movie came out. And it's not surprising at all, not, not just because the movie was such a hit, but because the movie itself feels like a sitcom anyways, in that there isn't, I just don't think there's enough going on at a lot of times. It sort of feels like this is what Cher's doing with this person. And then this is what Cher's doing with this person. And it's it just episodic. feels, it just feels episodic and rigid and, and all the other things certainly about the weirdness of the Cher and Josh relationship, me Googling the age difference between Alicia Silverstone and Paul Rudd, which is seven years. Um, and, and there's plenty more. We could pick apart each individual point all night, but but the, the overriding factor that, that I feel after rewatching it is nice movie, great lines, uh, slower than I think people would remember. It, it definitely doesn't have the story arc. I will give you that. It doesn't have that story arc where Cher starts at point A and we see her get to point B. And, and it, it all makes sense. It, it, it doesn't have that um, that moment where like, oh, I see, she's completely changing. This makes sense. We followed her along this journey. It's not really there. She really changes in the last like 15 minutes where she starts to fall for her stepbrother, I guess. Um, stepbrother, not really stepbrother, ex, right? Ex-stepbrother. <laughs> And they I, were, hate they were. I hate that moment at the end, too, because it reminds me of a, a movie from a couple years later than the 90s that is much worse, but that did the exact same thing, which is If Lucy Fell. Did anyone see that with Sarah Jessica I, Parker? No, well, no. Horrible, horrible movie, but it has the exact same ending with someone just walking around being like, oh, why am I thinking about this person? That's weird. I don't have any feelings for that person. Wait a minute. I'm in love with them. It it doesn't play well there, and it's it's not good and clueless at all. I, so that's what I would actually say is is its shortcoming is is the story arc of any of the main characters. You're, you're right; it doesn't really go much further than hey, this is their lives in high school in Beverly Hills in the Valley, and that's pretty much what we're watching for a, a bit there. But the writing in the film, I think, is so. Excellent. I mean, I was laughing out loud. There, there's uh, a, a bit there where I, I wrote it as my jaw dropping moment where I laughed the hardest was when Cher gets mugged. This is after a party and uh, she gets mugged and the guy has got her at gunpoint and tells her to get down on the ground. And she's afraid that she's going to ruin the dress that she's wearing. 
it, it's perfect. It's it's hilarious, um, and it it it's believable in the movie because of this character that Alicia Silverstone's playing. All of that works for me. The writing was brilliant. You're not going to get any arguments out of me. I'm surprised you don't like this one more, Matt. But I mean, I get it. It is. It's this is vapid. It's definitely not like anything close to to drama. But I think. She kind of carved out when I'm I'm talking about Amy Heckerling this this like teen comedy niche and and um the look who's talking movies aside she's she's made some good films I mean how do you feel about Fast Times I I have nothing bad to say about Fast Times I I think my issue with Clueless part of it is what what Rye said it which is both the good thing about Cher is that she is a good person from the beginning and it, it turns her trajectory. It feels like the story itself is very choppy. My favorite moments tend to be when, when the, the characters are sure of themselves, the cluelessness it can get grating actually, but, but even something as simple as like when, uh, when Ty is being dangled over the edge of the uh, balcony Bannister, at the mall, yeah. Um, and, and Christian runs and, uh, defends her and, and make sure she isn't thrown over. Uh, just, there are a lot of moments like that where the characters are, are really sure of themselves and not afraid of what anyone thinks. And for a coming of age movie, it reminds me of, of another movie featured in the book, which is airborne, something that was much less successful and popular, the by far the best movie ever set in Cincinnati about rollerblading. I, I think we can all agree on that. But but that's a movie where where one of the things that I still love about it is that the main character just has this really unique outlook and um, comfort with himself. And with coming of age movies and movies set in high school being so much so much of, of that time is just determining who you are and and how you fit into things and and that kind of persistent discomfort that i i really appreciate the times when uh clueless even even something as silly one of the best lines in clueless is when they're talking about sex and Cher is not ashamed that she's a virgin uh and what does she say where's the line you see how picky i am about my shoes and they only go on my feet i love that line. not only is that a great line but i i also she's not so there's so many stories where people are like they lie about it or they're ashamed about various secrets that they might have with with people but there there are a lot of characters in this movie that are just comfortable with who they are and that's great i agree that is one of the great things about this movie it kind of when i when i caught it as a kid kind of made me feel better about myself in in a lot of ways i at least that's one of the things i i took away from it other thing I wanted to mention is this uh, Christian guy. I mean, he's just full. He's, you know, Joe Smooth, you know, super cool. And he's got these lines that he delivers that I wrote a few of them down that I, I'm going to use at some point in my life, I swear. I love when uh, Cher drops the pen in the classroom and he picks it up and he's looking at her legs and he says, nice stems. Just a, just a cool line and then his Boy, coolest, right. i gotta give you some better lines buddy <laughs> his coolest line is when he goes to pick up share uh for the date and he comes into the the house and Cher's dad is uh, a lawyer and he's working in in uh the office and he says nice pile of bricks 
meaning the house is nice. It's just a great way to say like nice house. He like looks around the house. He's like, nice pile of bricks. I'm going to use it sometime. Yeah, he was a fun character. I agree. He had style, panache. I had the the soundtrack on CD. I don't know if you guys did, but I, I loved it. I definitely have the soundtrack uh, on CD for sure. I don't think I listened to it that much. It was one of those where I sort of forgot why I bought it. Uh, but I did want to say, uh, and not to put us down rabbit hole though, because Rye was talking about those lines of Christians. I was, in, it made me want to think about why something is sort of dated versus still beloved. Because even so many of the things he says, like when he asked, He's so confident when he arrives. He's been at school for five minutes and he's already asking Cher, like, you seem like you have an in on all the heavy clam bakes or something like that, which he didn't invent those words. He's just choosing to say it that way. But it did remind me a little bit of Juno and the way that the very particular way that people speak in that movie, I think, I don't think people feel fondly about anymore. They just feel like that is really uh, dated and, and stale at this point. But um, and that was uh, the invention of a couple terms, certainly. But um, but I don't know. Why do you guys think some some things feel stale uh, where other movies, people, even silly lines like that endure? Does that make yeah. sense? No, it, it totally does, because I, I had the same exact thought watching Clueless that while this was um, something very similar to Juno, and I don't think I obviously didn't realize that Juno didn't exist at the time. Um, watching it, that it was maybe trying as hard as Juno did. I, I felt, and maybe I was older when I saw Juno, um, and, and maybe that's why I feel when I was watching it that I could feel it was trying hard to be cool. Not that Clueless isn't trying to be hard, but I don't think we see it trying to be hard on screen. It, it comes across smoother, and then that makes that more believable. At least I think that's my interpretation Matt Kay? I would say it's like the difference between when when an adult tries to use the kids slang you know like that's really hip man that's really groovy or that's lit you know versus when you hear kids actually using those words because we all grow up with our own set of slang it, ours is different from our parents which is different from our children and uh, that's just the way the world works but in Christian's case specifically, not to go too far down this rabbit hole, he is a character who is connected to the past. Like he loves these old movies. He drives an old car. He dresses like the Rat Pack in an old style. So the specific terms that he uses aren't of that era. He's a throwback character, which was kind of uh, popular in the 90s, like Squirrel Nut Zippers and like uh, swing music was in, I think, clueless taps into that a little bit with his character and that's why some of his phrases uh ring in your ears because they're time honored and tested so that's my theory anyway mm. that's a fair point and it should be mentioned that juno was very well received i i know i reviewed it fondly in, in 2007 oh, yeah. so it's not as if people rejected it right away because of the dialogue it was the opposite of that uh, it's only the way that we sort of look back on things that have a really distinctive voice mm-hmm um, one other thing I want to mention uh, before we close the books on Clueless is the idea that they casted two people that were so younger looking than their age. I mean, Paul Rudd, I think by him being casted in this role, 
threw me off for years on how old Paul Rudd was because he never seemed to age. It seemed for he 30 still years. Doesn't. Yeah. He still doesn't. He's starting to look a little more distinguished, but he's still a very young looking face. But how old was he? I mean, you said he was seven years older than Alicia they were Silverstone. 18 and 25 respectively. So he's 25 and he's, 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 you know, supposed to be hitting on a, a high school girl in the movie. I think he's and supposed to be have, 19 in the film or 20, something like that. And then you have Stacy Dash, who <laughs> I had to look it up because I knew it was something ridiculous. 29 years old. I, I, I paused the screen at one point and I looked and I thought I, there was no way somebody could be 29 and look like she looked like a 17 year old. She still I, looks amazing as well. I mean, they really casted two people that looked super young for their age. It was wild. Agree. How many jaws do you uh, do you give it, Rye? So I, I actually wrote down uh, three and a half jaws for Clueless. Wow. I'm at three. I'm at three jaws. I like it. I, I'm afraid. Matt, we're on a four jaw scale here, Matt Pace. Uh, I'm afraid to hear Matt Pace's uh, grade. Uh, I, I would say two and a half out of four oh. for me for Clueless. All right. That's better than I expected. They have three copies of it at the last video store in case you want to rent it on VHS. If not, it's streaming on Netflix until the 30. Oh, it's going to be just about done after this podcast airs. Uh, I like this new feature on Netflix. I don't know if it did it for you guys, but when I hit play on it, uh, a little thing came up that said uh, it'll be leaving Netflix on the 30th. I don't know if your apps did that. I didn't notice. I didn't notice. I, I thought, what a nice touch. About time we've gotten to that. So. Uh, now I know it's on Netflix now, but it'll be leaving on the, the 30th of November. So pretty cool. Yeah. Catch it while you can. Absolutely. All right. Wow. We're running long here, but we want to play some trivia. And in honor of Glass Onion, which is the new Knives Out movie, we are playing Glass Onion movie trivia. Matt Pace, you're our guest. You get to choose if you want to go first or, or let Matt K go first. There are steals uh, and they start off easy. Uh, I guess I'll go first. Question number one over to Matt Pace. Ed Norton made one movie with Matt Damon. Name it. That would be Rounders. That is correct. Question two over to Matt K. Matt, Kate Hudson starred in You, Me, and Dupree with Matt Dillon and this actor who played Dupree. Was that Matthew McConaughey? That is incorrect. Matt Pace, you got a chance for a steal and to take a 2 nothing lead. Well, both Matt's answer and my answer are people that many would want to uh, impersonate, but I'm not going to do that. I will just say Owen Wilson. It is Owen Wilson. <laughs> Correct. 2 to nothing. Matt Pace, and question three. Where did I get three. McConaughey from? Who, Jesus. You're thinking how to lose a guy in 10 days. Yeah, I think she was in two movies with him, um, I believe. But... That's probably where he screwed it up. Question three over to Matt Pace. Janelle Monet appeared in this 2020 film in which she plays a modern day author that wakes up to find she has been enslaved on a plantation. Janelle Monet, 2020 film. He's thinking. Uh, I know... Your hint on this one is Jonathan Taylor Thomas was not in the film. <laughs> that does narrow it down. It he does. Had a big 2020. Yeah, so this narrows it down. 
Uh, I'm lanking on this one. Matt K, you got a guess? Uh, was it? Was it called? Was it just called the Plantation? Ah, uh, something like that. It's a one-word title. Antebellum. 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 Yeah. Still two nothing. Matt Pace. Question four jumps over to Matt K. Matt Dave Bautista has made two movies directed by Denny Villeneuve. Name both of them. I'm guessing it wasn't that zombie movie. Dave Bautista. Two mm-hmm. movies that Denny Villeneuve has directed. Name both of them. Oh, wow. I can't even name one of them, dude. <laughs> I think this is a layup. You do? Yeah. I mean, Matt Pace is drinking his water on, on this question. He's got it in the bag. Uh, just, uh, I don't know. I really have no idea. Matt Pace, do you know the two movies that Dave Bautista starred in? Well, starred in, appeared in, I should say, that Denny Villeneuve directed. Uh, I admit I only made it through some of Dune, but I think Dave Bautista's in that, right? That is one of them. That is correct. I can name a lot of his other work, but I really don't remember another one that he was in, so I would sort of be guessing. Um, Is there a hint on this? Jonathan Taylor Thomas was not in the second film. Um, prisoners. Ah. We're looking for Blade Runner 2049. That's mm. a brutal question, though, man, because you had to name both, you know? Yeah. yeah. I should have. That, that was tough. Yeah. Still 2 nothing. question five over to Matt Pace. Matt... In 2001, Daniel Craig was in a movie based on a video game. Name the film. Two thousand one, Daniel Craig appears in a movie that was based on a video game. Man, video game related questions are not my forte. Mm. I I I don't know. Mm. Matt, a guess on this one. Daniel Craig in a video game movie. In 2001? 2001. This is really before he was big. Nobody really knew him as, you know, video game Daniel questions. Craig, you know? Right. Video game questions are my forte, generally speaking. But 2001, what video game movie did we have? Um, I'll say Mortal Kombat. No, that is incorrect. We're looking for Laura Croft, Tomb Raider. He oh, appears yeah. in Laura Croft, Tomb Raider. Still 2 nothing. Matt Pace. Question 6 over to Matt K. Matt, Ed Norton played twin brothers in this 2010 film that also starred Susan Sarandon and Richard Dreyfus. You kidding me? No, Ed Norton played Who twin brothers. Who writes this trivia? Jesus. No, I'm not kidding you. He, this he is was the actually hardest in this movie. freaking trivia ever. You know, no, no, I, no. He I was get actually a in this movie. Fear question no, or something. He, no, he was in this movie. He played twin brothers, so dual role for Ed Norton, right. and Susan Sarandon was in it. So was Richard Dreyfuss, and JTT was not in it. <laughs> this was this was. What about Bob Two? Double Trouble. Incorrect. <laughs> Matt Pasty, you got a guess on this one? 
I, I'm vaguely aware of the movie you're talking about, but I'm not going to have the title right now. Yeah. We were looking for Leaves of Grass. Leaves of Grass. Still Holy two to shit, nothing. I've never even heard of that, dude. <laughs> That's crazy. Tough, <laughs> tough trivia, you know? Yeah, Jesus. really hard this week. Question seven over to Matt Pace. He's still up two to nothing. He, he gets this one right. He wins it. Ethan Hawke appears in many 1990 movies. One of them was about a rugby team involved in a plane crash. Name the movie. That would be Alive. That is correct. <laughs> what a 1990s movie that was. Alive. Matt Pace up three to nothing at this point. Question eight. He's, Matt Pace has won, won this one. Question eight is over to Matt K. Matt Dave Bautista has made one movie with Jodie Foster. <laughs> Name the film. <laughs> Are you freaking kidding you me? you got to go out hard on question eight. Dave Bautista has made one movie with Jodie Foster. Name the film. I don't know. Was he in Elysium? Mm, no. That's a good guess, though. It was a sci-fi film, so there is a hint for you, Matt Pace. Got a guess on this one? Uh, I seem to remember that he played the beaver. In the beaver. <laughs> oh man, that would have been great if it was right. We were looking for Hotel Artemis, which I don't know how many have seen, but well, the ball game ends. Matt got zero correct. Matt K, that is, can get a virtual handshake. Yeah. Matt Pace wins this one. A virtual handshake for getting any one of those right, sir. <laughs> the jawbreaker, if it came down to it, was age of Dave, Dave Batista closest to Matt K. You got to guess. Uh, I, mm, has he hit 50 yet? No, I don't think so. I think he is in his late forties. I, I will say he is 48 years old. Lock him in at 48. Matt Pace, you got a guess? 47. He's 53. 53 wow. on Dave Batista. Yeah. All right. Oh. Same age as Daniel Craig, I believe. Unbelievable. And definitely older than JTT. Definitely. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Amazing that he wasn't in any of those movies. It's I know. It is shocking. Didn't help. Yeah. Shocking. I know. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, brings us to the end of a great jaw. And first and foremost, we got to thank our guest, Matt Pace, for making it all the way up to the last video store on Earth. Thanks, buddy. Thank you guys so much for having me. A blast as always. We also got to thank the last video store on earth. If you're looking for VHS tapes, this is the place to be. Check them out online at the last video store on earth. Matt, we also got to thank our sponsors. Yep. Thanks to Overcast and thanks to Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Uh, appreciate their support. Also, thanks to our engineer, uh, also part-time employee at the video store, Phil. Yes, thank you. Um, I... I know I've been working very hard, double dipping in a lot of different places. Cinema Jaw, the last video star on Earth, are not my only gigs. Uh, we'll have, I, I do have some folks coming out. It, it's afterwards uh, by the time we release this, but I'm sure on Patreon or something, we'll put photos of the art show I have in past tense for people listening now. Uh, and also, in addition to the art exhibit, I, I was commissioned to do work for an NFT collection, uh, Gobbletown.Gives. I will send Matt K the link to that as well in case you'd like to purchase and mint any of those because it helps make me money. Uh, yeah, busy, busy, busy. I'm sure there's other stuff too, but I'll plug those, uh, I don't know, two shifts from now after I've won Employee of the Month. I don't know. 
Yeah, you got to wait until you get employee of the month. Then you got a platform. You know, your voice yeah. echoes far and wide. And there's a little plaque where I can say what my favorite movie is and recommend a VHS of my own. There you go, Phil. I like it. We also got to thank our Patreons. Thanks for supporting the show. We spent a lot of the money on gas getting to the last video store on Earth, so thank you for supporting Cinema Jaw. If you want to join the family of Patreons, you can do so at patreon.com slash Cinema Jaw. Wow. I think we've done it, Matt. Are you ready to go home? Yeah. Let's, we got a, I got my rope and my ice pick. Uh, I, let me put my crampons back on and we'll slide down this thing. Until next week, I'm Ryan the Movie Guy. And I'm Matt K. And, and keep, keep on, on John about, about the movies. movies.